So today we're going to talk about breaking barriers at high noon. And so we've taken off a little time from John to, to have that series in August on living by faith in a strange new world. Last week, took a few minutes to talk about our daily witness. And uh, boy, I, I think it's a very important subject. If you had to be gone and a lot were gone, you can go online, go to Sermon Central or go to our website, or you can go YouTube Grace Church and you can see it live stream or the copy of the live stream. Daily Witness talks about how our vocations offer us great opportunities as believers. And then uh, I want to get into this this morning. And I want to, first of all, before we stand and read the passage, we're going to be talking about that woman, that Samaritan woman who... Um, she had an encounter with Jesus at a well on a very hot day, and we're going to talk about her. We're going to talk about the fact that Jesus and his disciples left the area of Judea, and they went north to Galilee, and then there was this issue of Samaria, and there's a phrase in here that is the foundation of everything I'm going to say today, and it's found in verse number four, which we're going to read in a minute, but I'll go ahead and say it. It says, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again to Galilee but he needed to go through Samaria. That phrase, that's the foundation of everything I'm going to say today. He needed to go through Samaria. So we mentioned the word Samaria, and we have to give a little lay of the land and understand this a little bit. Samaria was a, was a people group and a location that lay between Galilee and Judea. Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, very small country. Pure blood Jews lived in Galilee and Judea, but between them dwelled what the Jews considered a mongrel group of people. They were called the Samaritans. And that's not a nice way to refer to somebody, but that's the way they looked at them. And the Samaritans looked at the Jews the same way. In 722 BC, roughly, the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes in the north, had fallen to the nation of Assyria. And uh, the habit of that king of Assyria was to dilute the population. And so he would, um, he would dilute the population, the conquered peoples, he would deport to other locations, and then he would import from other conquered lands those people so that he could mix the people, and the people could not congregate on the basis of ethnicity and so on, and so he would dilute them. Well, inevitably, the people began to intermarry after a time, and the result was this group of people in the Bible known as Samaritans. And of course, that's not the only time it shows up in the New Testament. You remember that uh, Jesus, or you remember that um, there was the story of a man who fell among thieves and he was helped by the good what? Samaritan. And so it shows up quite a few times in the New Testament, but that's who they were. Uh, the Jews excluded the Samaritans from all Jewish life. Even in the reconstruction of the temple in Nehemiah's day, they were not welcome. And then also later as the temple was built, they were not welcome. They couldn't come. Well, the Samaritans, uh, they were rejected, but they didn't just sit back and say, oh, poor us. They decided to do something about it. So they built their own temple and they built it at Mount Gerizim. And you're going to read that in the passage today, Mount Gerizim. And uh, a rivalry, rival religion was begun. They used the same scriptures, but they only used the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They only used those. They did not use anything else, no prophets, no poetry, no history. And so they did everything out of the first five books of the Bible. They claimed the same ancestry. They claimed Abraham. In fact, this is what they thought about their mountain, not, not Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but their mountain, Mount Gerizim in the north. They claimed that Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Gerizim. They claim that Melchizedek, 
that priest of God met Abraham after the recaptured Lot and all of his family, uh, that he did that uh, on Mount Gerizim. And then he also, they also claim that Moses built the first Exodus altar on Mount Gerizim. Now, all of that is kind of the background to let you know where these people, who these people are, what the situation was, and why it is so astounding that Jesus said, look, I need to go through, I need to go through Samaria when there was such animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, let's stand together and let's read the Word of God. It's a rather long passage uh, that I'm going to preach from. I've cut it in half to read, but we do need to read God's Word. If you're our guest today, welcome. We always stand and honor the Word of God. We read it out loud to obey Paul, Paul's command to Timothy to give, give public reading of the Word of God. So let's read together, beginning in 1 down through verse number 14. And let's begin. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. What a phrase. What a passage. It's not just living water coming to you. It's living water flowing through you. And what a beautiful, beautiful passage this is. I'll refer to more of it, but let's stop there and let's pray. Father, add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word. We are gathered in your presence today. We honor you by giving attention to what you have said in your word. We honor you by stopping everything, turning off our phones and anything that might distract and paying attention to your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit you would command to draw our hearts and minds together to understand the passage. Now, if there's someone, Father, here that doesn't know you, please draw them to yourself today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you be seated? Once again, that most important little phrase that's the foundation is now he had to go through Samaria. Not really. He could have taken the normal route around the mountain, the mountainous and hostile area. 
But he chose to walk for days through rough and dangerous territory to get to the well because he had an appointment. Jesus is drawn to needy people. Boy, what a wonderful, wonderful thought that is. Jesus is not avoiding needy people. This is 9-11. I can't help but think about those policemen and firemen even yet who ran toward the trouble instead of running from the trouble. Wasn't that amazing? Boy, we have so much to be thankful for because Jesus, he goes to people who are in need. Let's remember, he's the one that left the 90 and 9 to go found the lost. He is the one that says the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. A simple outline of the whole chapter is he left Judea for John's sake so that there wouldn't be arguments over baptism. He left Judea for the woman's sake so she could hear the good news. And he left Judea for the disciples' sake. That's next week. I'm going to talk about that. Why? What was he telling the disciples? Well, in our story today, I want us to focus on this whole idea of breaking down these barriers. And I added the high noon because that's going to be a significant point in this story. He needed to break down some barriers. There were many. Today, there are still many barriers between people that keep us from getting together, even in the body of Christ. I want to talk about it. And the first barrier that I want to talk about is the fact that prejudice is a barrier. Prejudice. You say, well, what is prejudice, pastor? I think I know, but what is it? Well, it's prejudgment. It's categorical rejection of an individual a group, a race, or their supposed characteristics. It's just rejection, categorical rejection of people, putting them all in the same box, so to speak. There is national prejudice in this story that we're studying. The Jew-Gentile, Jew-Samaritan barrier was one of them. It wasn't the only one. Even we have to recognize that originally Jesus sent out the 12 in, in the book of Matthew chapter 10, and he told them this. He says, do not go to the Gentiles. You say, well, I think that seems strange because in this passage, that's who he went to. Is he contradicting himself? Nope, it wasn't time yet. Matthew 20, 10, 12, he sent the 12 out and he commanded them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus himself claimed that his main efforts were for the Jews also. Not only did he send the 12 out just to the Jews, but he did the same thing in Matthew 15, 24, when the woman of Sidon had a child that was so ill and wanted, wanted her to be healed, Jesus actually called her a dog. I don't know if you remember that. It's not right to give the food of the children to the dogs. Now, he had a greater purpose in that than, than what was obvious. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The point wasn't that the Jews were the only ones intended to hear the gospel. We know that from many, many passages. But we know this, the Jews were the messengers that are going to be sent to the rest of the world. And if they did not know the Messiah themselves, they could not represent him to others. Boy, what a thought. It's very difficult to, to present someone and some truth to other people if you don't know it or know them yourself. I think that's part of the problem with a lot of Christians today is they don't know what the Bible actually says, so they struggle with telling anybody about it. And maybe they think they know the Lord Jesus, but maybe they know an idea about him or they know some concept, but not really truly knowing him. Well, they didn't know him. And so they were sent first to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, Romans chapter one, verse 17. There was national prejudice. Then there was racial prejudice. Look at the little word. It's so interesting here. Verse nine, the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? 
a Samaritan. And he goes, she goes on to say, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I talked about this a little bit in the introduction. The degree of animosity here between these groups was extreme. You say, how extreme? Well, jot this passage down and go read it for a Sunday afternoon read. In Luke chapter 9, verse 53 and following, Jesus was headed to Jerusalem for his final time. He's getting ready to go back to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the whole world. The Bible says his face was set like a flint. I mean, he was just, he, he, his, he was determined. Now's the time. I'm headed to Jerusalem. Well, on the trip down, they took the most direct route once again, and he needed to go through Samaria. And he's go, as he's going through Samaria, they needed lodging. So he sent some of his entourage ahead, says, look, go prepare lodging for us. And they went into one of the cities of the Samaritans. They wouldn't receive them. They wouldn't offer them hospitality. They wouldn't even rent them a place. Why? Well, because they were Jews. Second, they were going to Jerusalem for some feast. They wanted nothing to do with it. And this is how they could goad them and get back at them. He said, well, how terrible. Well, listen to how the Jews, the disciples, the ones who were going to be apostles, listen to how they reacted. Here's what happened. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, that is the way that they didn't provide hospitality, when James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? <laughs> That's Luke 9, 53 and 54. Basically, in essence, they were saying, huh, you're going to treat us that way. Lord, do you want us to nuke them? Pretty much. Now, they didn't have the authority or the power to nuke them, but I mean, they thought they did. They thought maybe God would answer just like he did with Elijah back in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, look, I came to save lives, not destroy lives. But let's pause for a minute. The, the Jews were furiously opposed to the Samaritans and people of that ethnic group. And the people of that ethnic group were severely opposed and hateful uh, toward the Jews, and it was historic. It had gone on since the time of the building of the wall of Nehemiah. It had been going on. And so uh, we think about, oh, how despicable that is. Well, let me just ask this question. I wonder if there are people groups, nationalities, ethnicities, cultures, or races of people that we had just as soon not reach out to with the gospel or to have an affinity toward or to receive among us or to fellowship with. Let me say that again. I wonder if there are groups, nationalities, ethnicities, cultures, or races of people that we had just as soon not reach out to with the gospel. You know, it is amazing. We spend a great portion of the money that we give each week to evangelize people around the world, and we should, to send missionaries and to start churches. But you know, a lot of those nationalities of people live here. And instead of reaching them, we isolate from them. Think about it. Do you remember Jonah? You guys remember Jonah in the Bible? You know, Jonah and the big fish. How many of you know what story I'm talking about? Do you know Jonah had a call from God to go to Nineveh? He didn't like Nineveh. He didn't like the people of Nineveh. He didn't like anybody there. In fact, he didn't want the people of Nineveh to get saved. And so, and when they did get saved, he was mad about it. And so what did he do when God sent him there? He ran, went and got in a boat, ran the other direction. Now, nearly, it really cost him. But the truth is he did. He went the opposite direction because he had this deep-rooted 
And when he did finally get there, it was the worst, it was the worst evangelism campaign as far as his presentation you could ever imagine. A guy gets out, comes out of the mouth of a whale, spit up on the beach, starts walking around. He's covered with, he's, he's, the, the gastric juices has turned his skin white. He looks like a ghost. He smells like the inside of a whale. He's got seaweed all around his head. And all he said was, repent or God's going to destroy this place. Man, everybody got, everybody repented from the king to everybody else. What did he do? He was mad about it. Go read that story sometime. Prejudice. Wow. And then there's something else here. I want you to look at that verse 9 again. The woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask of me a drink? A Samaritan. And look at this word. Woman. There was gender prejudice. Huge gender prejudice in those days. Isn't it amazing how gender is just like right on the front cover again? (laughs) He uh, was a man, Jesus was, this was a woman, even his disciples in verse number 27 are blown away that he's standing there talking to this woman by the well. And so no one in history, and I just have to say this, no one in history elevated women like Jesus did. No religion in history elevated women like Christianity did. Let me just point out a few things. Jesus received women and he saved all who came to him. They included Mary who was possessed of many demons. They included a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Then they included another woman who was a woman of the street and gained her income by a practice that we all know. This woman cleaned his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, and poured on a year's earnings worth of very expensive nard out of an alabaster box and poured that on Jesus' feet. Many women were in his entourage as he traveled. In fact, they did the heavy lifting and the hard work. They provided both the money and the goods. And they were the group that, were, that made sure that the disciples had what they needed as they followed Jesus from place to place. The women. Christianity has done more historically to advance women than we could imagine. If we could go back and study and take time, we'd find that in the first century and second century, little girl babies, when they were born, if there was already at least one girl in the family, the little girl babies would be taken to the city dump and lifted up for the ravens to come and eat or people to kill. But thankfully, Christians, it was the Christians that went and saved them uh, from, from dying in that way. Some did, but they saved many. On the issue of gender and prejudice, the Jewish attitude at the time was like this. Think about this. This is is the way men looked at women. You think it's bad today? Listen to this. This is the rabbinic teachings quoted from the Mishnah. One should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with somebody else's wife because of the gossip of men. And it is forbidden to give a woman any greeting at all. That was the culture of that moment. It was worse between a Samaritan and a Jew. Amazing. But you know what's wonderful? Jesus needed to go through Samaria. I keep saying that. Jesus needed to. Why? Because these barriers, these situations, he needed to show his disciples and he needed to show the woman. He needed to show the world, he needed to show you and me that these barriers are not barriers that Jesus intends to be maintained, but to be overcome. Jesus overcomes all prejudices. I can't fail to mention this. In chapter three, we saw Nicodemus. Nicodemus, these stories, the, these, the way things are connected are not by accident. 
In chapter three, Nicodemus was a Jewish male. He was a highly learned teacher. In fact, he was the teacher of the Jews, a Pharisee. He was careful in keeping all of the law. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a person of great public reputation and authority. That's who Jesus presented the good news of the gospel to in chapter three. The high and mighty, the greatly respected, the very wealthy. Now we come to this new conversation in chapter four. And he's having a conversation with a Samaritan, a female, illiterate, uh, necessarily so because women were shut out from education at that time. With a lifestyle, this woman, a lifestyle in flagrant contradiction to the law, publicly despised and ostracized. Why do you think she was there at high noon? She was getting her water at high noon when there would be no one there to argue with her and there'd be no criticism. Everybody else was finding shade at the heat of the day, but she went out there at high noon so that she wouldn't have to deal with all of those things. You see, she was ostracized. What is striking about this is that in these two dialogues, Jesus is remarkably able to be at home with each one of them. Can I just pull over and say something? I want to say to you that it takes the same, it takes the same grace of God to save someone who is on the upper echelons of the world and of society that it takes to save one who's on the bottom rung of the ladder of society. It takes as much to save the highly religious, and there's hardly anyone as difficult to share the gospel with than a religious person. It takes the same grace of God to reach the highly religious as the irreligious who have nothing to do with God at all. It takes the same grace of God. Do you know who Jesus approaches? Everybody. He approaches everybody. You know, some of us are very comfortable approaching people that are on a lower societal level, but we get intimidated when somebody's on a higher societal level. Well, they may be an expert in some fields, but we're supposed to be experts in what the word of God has to say and the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the salvation of God. Oh, it's so important. There's another big barrier. It's spiritual darkness, spiritual darkness. Jesus had asked her for a drink. He had a common need with all of humanity, food, air, water, shelter, and like are the common needs that everyone has. Interestingly enough, Jesus, just like in the wilderness, he didn't turn the stones into bread. And here he did not strike the rock and get water from the rock. No, he used his common need to start a conversation. And oh, how many common needs we have with everybody around us. As far as I know, everybody needs air, water, shelter, water, food. They all need that. And so he used the common need to start a conversation. He shared a point of contact based in common human need. You know, for us as believers that know the Lord Jesus, no matter the race, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the place in the world, it ought to be like, it ought to be like a neon sign in our mind when we hear of the suffering and the pain and the divorce and the rebellious children and the loss of job and the hunger and the death and the heartache and the pain. It ought to be like a neon side because how many of you recognize that all of us go through personal pain at some time? Can I see your hand? That's what you have in common with everybody. Jesus used what he had in common and he started a conversation. We can be blind to our need. Jesus asked her for water to, con for, to start the conversation, but she was blind to the fact she had another need. She knew she needed a drink of water, but she didn't know just how bad she needed Jesus said in verse number 10, look, I've asked you for physical water, but if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me, you would ask me for a drink and I'd give you living water. And she was blind to it. She didn't know what she didn't have. That's what's wrong with the world today. They don't, 
They don't know. It's just, you know, the cares of this life and the, the pleasures of sin. And everything's, everyone's blinded to their need unless somebody tells them, somebody talks to them. Something else can blind us. We can be blinded by the tyranny of our present problem. Whatever we're going through. Verse 11, he said, look, you hadn't got any bucket. Verse 15, when she heard about this living water that you'd never have to come there again, she immediately thought, oh, wow. Man, if he's got some kind, of, some kind of supply that I don't know about that I can get and I never have to come here in the heat of the day, wow, give me that. In other words, she wanted the problem of the moment to be solved. You know, I think it's accurate to say that God can use problems and heartaches to draw us to him. The woman with the 12-year issue of blood was drawn to Jesus for healing. In the same story, a 12-year-old little girl who had died led her parents to seek Jesus, and they did, and he healed the little girl. The demoniac, that man that was possessed of legions of demons, he was converted when he, when Jesus, he was converted and commissioned to go to his own family and to Decapolis, a 10-town area where he lived, and he did. But I also want to point this out. Sometimes problems can draw people to Christ. Sometimes problems and daily troubles can keep us from coming to Christ. Problems, physical problems, addiction problems, relationship problems can blind us to the real problem that we have, the greatest problem. You know, the devil will supply both blessings and problems to keep people from coming to Jesus. He will supply whatever works. He, he is as happy to use religion to keep people from coming to Christ as he is to use drug addiction to keep people from coming to Christ. He'll use anything. But the truth is, when we have these problems in life, sometimes they blind us to the real problem. The first response of this woman was a practical and physical response. Give me some of that water. I don't want to come here anymore. This is the way we do it today. We hear about Jesus and we say, okay, fix up what's torn up. Repair these broken relationships. Heal me of this Ill, illness. Deliver me from this affliction. Give me what I want. Make things easier. Do you know what, folks, today? God is not just mending people. He's regenerating people. Do you know what? God is not just helping people with their problems. He's calling us from the dead. Are you aware that we are dead in our trespasses and sin? Ephesians chapter two. We're not even alive and we don't even know. People do not, natural people do not even know they're not alive spiritually because all they're thinking about is physical things. Jesus calls the dead to life. Jesus has something to give us. For the future, he told us, look, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him and I would give you the gift of God. God's got a gift for us. First John 2.25, this is the promise that he made us, even eternal life. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, yes, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus has something to give us for today as well, not just for the future, but for today. He wants to give us living water that doesn't just flow to us, but wells up in us and flows to other people. Folks, Jesus doesn't want to just give us a drink. He wants to make us a fountain. Would you let that sink in for a moment? Jesus didn't want to just give this woman a drink. He wanted to make her a fountain. In our Christian lives, boy, we just, it's so easy to just think it's, oh, Lord, do this for me, do that for me, do this for me, help me with this, help me. Well, of course, we ask him for all those things. We're helpless. But he doesn't just fill us up so that we become reservoirs and stagnant ponds. We're supposed to be rivers and channels. And God's grace flows to us so that it can flow through us. God cares about what's happening in our life. God cares about your problems. God cares about your forever. God cares. And I want to tell you what I do too. 
I care about you. I care about your hurts, your pains, your heartaches. I want you to understand that God loves you, folks. Jesus loves every single person. Jesus is ready to come with living water to everyone who will believe. Oh, it is just so important for us to understand. But at the same time, we have to also get, get a grip on this. We're not supposed to just be receiving for our own selves, but we are to become fountains so that God can flow through us. We can be blind to our own sin. This is when it really got serious. He told her, he says, look, go call your husband. Go call your husband. Well, that was a sore spot. You say, why is that? Well, if we read on verse 16 to 18, we'd find out that Jesus said, go call your husband. She says, I don't have one. Jesus, okay, you're telling the truth. You've had five husbands. And the person you're cohabiting with right now is not your husband. That's interesting. I want you to notice something here. Jesus was not surprised or repelled by her serial marriages, nor by her present adultery. He was not surprised nor repelled. There's two thoughts there. Nothing surprises God. I think sometimes we think God gets up in the morning and he said, oh, how did that happen? How did that earthquake happen? How did this? Well, I didn't think that person would do that. God is never surprised. Neither is he repelled. Now, if you stop and think about things that people do and sins that people are involved in and what's going on in the world, there's just certain things that repel us. God is not repelled because I want to tell you something. There is no sin that God cannot redeem us from and save us from and give us eternal life. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad there's nothing beyond the long arm of God's grace? There's nothing that God cannot save us from. We're shocked with what's going on in the world. Jesus is never shocked. Micah chapter two, verse one says, woe to those who devise iniquity. And they think about it as they lay on their beds. It seems like people are inventing evil things today. Peter says that the world thinks there's something wrong with us because we won't run to them to the dissipation. That is the wild, unrestrained life. We won't run with them to it. The world thinks we're crazy. You know why? Because sin is in, wickedness is celebrated. Jesus in his kindness and his sensitivity and his cultural understanding still did not sidestep the sin issue. You know, there's a lot of people that think that's what church ought to be like. We ought to just stand up and talk about love, love, love. Amen. God loves us. I just got done saying that he proved it in the cross of Christ. Never talk about the fact that sin is a separator. Sin separates us. Jesus didn't practice any kind of easy believism that only speaks of love and forgiveness without ever pointing out that sin is the problem. It separated us from God now and it'll separate us in eternity if we do not face it, repent of it, believe the gospel. The only sin that will ever keep anybody from God and out of heaven, the only sin is the sin of unbelief. Unbelief, it's unforgivable. Third, religious tradition is a barrier, and my time's about up. Let me quickly give you this at the end. Religious tradition is a barrier. Are you greater than our father Jacob? She's starting to talk about her ancestry. And then verse 19, sir, I think you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. You know what? He talked about the fact that she was a sinner in need of forgiveness and change, and she changed the subject. Let's have a religious debate. Religion prevents more people from coming to Jesus than any single issue. The most difficult group to reach in Jesus' day were those religious Pharisees and Sadducees. 
Religion does something else. Religion perverts the gospel. Oh, it's so important for you to hear me say this. Religion perverts the gospel. It teaches do instead of done. It teaches that there are steps that you must take. It teaches that there are works that you must do. It teaches that there are sacramental progressions that you must accomplish before you can be accepted by God and maybe even then without any certainty. It perverts the gospel. It is the cry that Jesus made at the cross that said, it is finished. It is Revelation chapter 21, verse six that says this. It's beautiful. Way over in Revelation 21, six. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Listen to these words. It's the same subject, same writer. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. It's done. Oh my word, we need to understand Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about some ladder you climb to get to heaven. No, no, no. It's about the fact that the ladder extended to earth and Jesus came down and he died on the cross and he paid our sin debt and he offers Forgiveness and eternal life to everyone who believes. Do you believe? That's the question. Religion produces pride and pride condemns and pride kills and pride prevents the gospel from penetrating the heart. Religion provides meaningless worship. It says here in the passage, it says um, in, let's see, let's jump down to it. Verse number 21, verse 21, Jesus said to her woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem, worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship or who we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus says, look, you guys don't know what you worship. You don't know why you worship. You don't know who you worship. You just worship. They like to argue about the place of worship. Folks, it's not about the place of God in this mountain or that one like the Samaritan woman began to do. She does what many want to do today. Let's have a discussion about where to worship, which is the right church, which is the right way. How do you do it? What should everybody look like? Too often we come to the worship services focusing on ourselves and what we can get out of it. Are they doing the kind of music I like? Is everyone dressing the way I like? Does the building look the way I like? Today, people are talking about the God I worship. They perverted the true God. And here's what they think. The God I worship would never allow anybody to go to hell because he's loving. The God I worship made made homosexuals the way they are, and he accepts their lifestyle. The God I worship accepts anyone into heaven if they're good enough or sincere in what they believe. The God I worship doesn't care whether I ever go to church or not. Number five, I'll say, frankly, the God that person worships does not exist. Jesus eliminates all these barriers, verse 21 to 26. He says in those verses, the hour was coming when location wouldn't matter. Not about where you're standing, it's about what's in your heart. The hour had come for true worshipers to worship the Father. The hour had come to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Why had the hour come? Because Jesus was the truth, is the truth, and he is dispensing the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gives him spirit and in truth. Folks, I just want to say hallelujah to all of this because we don't have to travel to Jerusalem. We don't have to bring an animal sacrifice. We don't keep endless traditions and rules. We come to the truth. We come having the spirit. 
God is seeking worshipers like this. He's seeking them in Des Moines. He's seeking them in Iowa. He's seeking them in the United States. He's seeking them around the world. Doesn't matter what ethnicity, what color of their skin. Doesn't matter the language group, the cultural group. Doesn't make any difference. He is seeking worshipers. The hour had come for the woman at the well. Verse number 25, she confirms that, well, when the Messiah gets here, I'll believe. Verse 26, Jesus says, the one speaking to you, I am he. Whoa. I am. I am he. I am the Messiah. Wow. She got a taste of the real truth and it affected her. She had to go tell somebody. Folks, I want to tell you something. We are not to worship a God of speculation. That is the God of our imagination. We worship the God of revelation, the God who has told us who he is and what he's like in his word. True worship is worshiping the God of truth according to the truth. In verse 28, she dropped the pot. (laughs) I thought that was cool. She was out there to get water. It's the middle of the day. She's hot. She's thirsty. She's got things to do. And what does she do when she meets Jesus and finds out he's the Messiah and he's giving her living water? She dropped the pot. There's a lot of people that think, you know, they, they think a lot of things are important. But boy, when you find Jesus, you find out everything takes a second level. Amen. Is Jesus the most important thing in your life today? Say amen. amen. He is. If he isn't, better come see me. She dropped the pot. Verse 39, many people believe. This is next week's sermon, actually. Many people believe. Verse 42, the people didn't come and become followers of the woman at the well. They came and became followers of Jesus. Oh, how beautiful. Let me ask you a question this morning. What well are you trying to tap into right now? Maybe you're here and you say, man, I'm, just, I'm trying to get things straightened out. Maybe you're thinking another relationship will fix it up. Maybe a little more money, better job. Maybe if I could just be more popular or maybe get another drink, another fix. You're not going to receive the living water that way. You only receive the living water and life change through Jesus. You see this rag of a woman we have in this story? Cast off, five times married, living with somebody right now, outcast. Nobody wants to talk to her. Nobody wants to be around her. She's all alone. She's by herself. She's doing her work in the heat of the day because there she is. This rag of a woman. Traces of beauty are still there, but she's all used up, dried up, cast out, living with a guy that doesn't give a rip about her. But just one drink from the well of salvation. (laughs) Just one drink. And an encounter with Jesus and faith in her heart and everything changed. You know what? The gospel changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Christian brother or sister, has your church life become ritualistic for you? Or have you received a religion like Nicodemus? Or have you received false hope like a Samaritan woman? I'm just here to tell you, Jesus gives living water. And it makes all the difference. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. Jesus had to go through Samaria. I'm going to tell you some more reasons next week. He had to go through Samaria.